Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. You've been listening to the Ruminations Show, highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs and our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, This week on the Living Free Show, we'll focus on how Alcoholics Anonymous helps alcoholics and problem drinkers. First off, got a content warning. This interview contains descriptions and discussions about sexual abuse, suicidal thoughts and mental health illness, and those may be distressing to some listeners. Today I'm interviewing from home on Zoom, and I'd like to welcome Zoe to the show. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Bill. Zoe is an alcoholic, and she's recovering with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Zoe, we usually start talking about family and growing up. So what was growing up and family like for you? Hmm. Well, my parents broke up when I was about two and I grew up in a pretty blended family. I've got like um, three older siblings who are about 15 years older than me and then two younger siblings. So I guess I always felt like a bit out of place in my family growing up because I was the only person with my last name and um, there was probably a bit of favouritism going on as well, just with the new marriage. So I guess just to be brutally honest, um, that was quite difficult. Did you have to move homes? Mm, the divorce happened when I was about two, so... Yeah, you weren't aware. <laughs> no memory. <laughs> <laughs> okay, continue. Yeah, so I was really lucky. It was very, like, in many ways, a really stable upbringing, um, Yeah, I never went to bed hungry or anything like that. Emotionally, it was pretty turbulent. I had a really close family member. My mum was a really heavy drinker. She still is. And, yeah, like she was getting drunk, you know, every second night, really, really drunk and quite, like, emotionally abusive as well. But we were a middle-class family and she was very much the sort of functional alcoholic who got everything done that needed to be done, but then, you know, followed that with two, three bottles of wine at night. So I always sort of swore to myself that I would never be like that. And I always swore to myself, you know, I'll never drink red wine. Like I hate the smell of red wine breath and things like that. I never want to be that abusive alcoholic who, you know, does things when they're drunk, says awful things, and then, you know, wakes up the next day and pretends like they didn't happen. But, yeah, without skipping ahead, I sort of, I certainly found later in life that I was breaking those promises I'd made to myself as a child. Yeah. So what did your your dad think? My dad was completely absent. He, I'm honestly not sure why he really had children because he wasn't involved in my upbringing much at all. I guess this, like, this show is about total honesty, so I'll just be completely upfront. He... He certainly, I would say he preferred, um, this is a pretty full on thing to talk about, but I yep. think it could be said, um, he sort of like groomed me a bit. 
um, like nothing ever physically happened, but there was a really strong like sexual overtone to our relationship and I only saw him like every second weekend. But like, yeah, it was an extremely inappropriate relationship. And I look back now and I can see like, whoa, that was so not okay. And there are things that went on that were, you know, like showing a child um, like explicit material and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it was weird because I, yeah, lived in this very like sort of upwardly mobile, like private school going family and everyone on the outside was very presentable. And, you know, I went to the top um, private school in Brisbane and yeah, to, to the outside, we were a family that was, you know, really had everything together and, yeah, it was interesting because on the inside there were many things that were really wrong, but I think there was this, and and I certainly internalised this as well, this sort of idea that, you know, alcoholism, sexual abuse, these are things that happen to, you know, other people, that it happened in families like ours. And, yeah, I mean, these are the very things that, that were going on for me as a kid. So Yeah. So what about your brothers and sisters? Did they experience the same sort of treatment? Well, I was the only child who was spending time with my father because my older siblings were all grown up and they'd grown up with their mother. My younger siblings did cop a bit from my mum, but I think, yeah, I sort of seemed to cop more of it because I was, I guess I was older and, I mean, I think they also did as they grew up to be teenagers as well. But, yeah, it certainly felt at the time like, I wouldn't say I was targeted, I think, Mum just had really high expectations for me and that was about her, those high expectations, but they came out when she was drunk at me, so. Yeah, okay. So what about school? Did you get on well at school? Yeah, I got on pretty well at school, although I can see now that um, some pretty negative patterns of behaviour sort of started up there. Um, Yeah, sort of cycling through friends and it was always other people doing me wrong rather than owning any role in you know friendship breakdowns I I did fine at school like I had friends I had a group of friends I got good grades I did everything that was expected of me probably a bit too much really but yeah I guess it was through high school I I did keep it together pretty well but it was really at the end of grade 12 when things really started to go off the rails for me mental health wise and also drinking enormously and taking drugs so when did you start drinking Mm, I think probably had my first drink when I was about 11 but I really started drinking regularly when I was about 14 um it was at you know house parties and I just remember I loved the feeling that alcohol gave me I just I remember thinking really clearly I wish I could just be drunk all the time like that would just be like how much better would life be because I'd be this confident, happy, social person who gets on with everyone and is able to have relationships and can can manage the sorts of difficult emotions that alcohol helped me to numb. Yeah, so did you feel that it solved your problems? Yeah, completely. It was like, where has this been all my life? And, I'm yeah, it was a revelation. Yeah. Did you drink to blackout? I started probably having blackouts in my 20s. One of the things that I realised with my dad was that I could never understand why he'd wake up the next morning and couldn't remember what he'd said and done 
and he'd done some pretty terrible things. <laughs> but he, and I just could not believe it. And then, you know, years, years and years later, uh, probably, I don't know, 30, 35, 40 years later, I realised that he probably blacked out and he just didn't, he didn't remember it. And that happened on the show. I, you know, I'd been in, you know, program for a while and I was talking to people and, and I thought, wow, that's probably what my dad did. He probably blacked out. That's how he could just get up the next day and act as if nothing happened because to him, nothing happened. Um, so how did your friends react? Mm, I lost a lot of friends basically from the end of high school. I went through groups of friends. I would have a group of friends and then the pattern I can see now is that my drinking was out of control. My drug taking was out of control. I was just very antisocial and also just a really unhappy person, very angry and quite a divisive person. And I just got people offside quite quickly. Like we'd be friends and then suddenly it would be like I'd be doing something terrible, like some awful drunken behavior. And then of course, in my head, I would say it was all their fault, but I can see now that that I definitely played a role. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite good to look back, isn't it? <laughs> See that stuff. So what about relationships? Were they difficult? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's a, it's a huge question, isn't it? Yeah, I think I... So I definitely lost intimate relationships because of my behaviour. Yeah. Um, like things varying from being unfaithful um, either knowing I'd done it or <laughs> in a blackout, all the way to just really self-centred, de- demanding, you know, borderline sort of controlling, needy behaviour, just alienating at the best of times. Yeah, I'll say, yeah, okay. <laughs> so what about study and work? So after year 12, what happened? I actually um, went to England and did like a gap year there. That's the thing among, like, private schools, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, I went to England. It was honestly, it was just so not me. Like, I'm not someone, or as a, as a teenager, I was not someone who loved, loved working with kids, let alone younger teenagers. The role was basically you're like a gap student and you work, like, in, in a, a sort of rich boarding school and you sort of work with the kids. But it just really didn't work out my drinking was like really escalating at that stage and also my siblings lived in London I was dying to go to London every weekend and just like get on (laughs) all of the drugs you could get on at the clubs there as well and yeah my mental health was in a a really bad way that year like I was doing a lot of self-harm and yeah, it's honestly amazing. I didn't make an attempt on my life. Um, but yeah, I guess in terms of my, um, aside from that jobs and study, I um, studied law and finance and I did really well. I graduated with honours, but yeah, it was very much like I worked extremely hard, but also drank really heavily. Um, I think the drinking was sort of like a bit under control in my sort of earlier twenties, I guess, because it was more socially acceptable to, you know, be getting drunk all the time because that's apparently what you do in our culture in your early twenties and your mid twenties less so. But yeah, I graduated and started working. Is that back in Australia? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I only spent like nine months in England. I just jumped. Sorry. That's okay. (laughs) 
Yeah, I might just maybe talk about work. Yeah. Yeah, so I moved to the Northern Territory to start working as a lawyer. And it was really like when I started working as a lawyer, the stresses of having to appear in court every day and not having any idea what I was doing. It was like, (laughs) I described it as like an obtuse angle learning curve. Like it was just so stressful. And the drinking culture up there is, yeah, off the charts. So I found myself drinking like a bottle of wine a night for about two years. And yeah, so that really like sort of lit a fire underneath my drinking problem. I was blacking out often, turning up to court drunk. Yeah. I'm really sorry to all of my clients during that time. So what about working relations with colleagues? Mm, yeah, look, in in the Northern Territory, maybe I'm sort of justifying a bit here, but at the organisations I worked at, it was quite common to be a heavy drinker. That was part of the culture. Like you drink, drink heavily, then you rock up to court the next day and you run a trial there were all these war stories about lawyers who had, you know, left the pub at 1am. Okay. It must have taken a a toll on you. So how did you live while drinking heavily and working? It must have been a a crazy time. Yeah, it wasn't sustainable, put it that way. It was, yeah, I was increasing to, like, we would go out on weeknights and, and see who could have the most shots. Like, I just can't even believe that we did that now. Like, we would have up to 10 shots in a night plus several beers. And it was scary because I realised I was drinking to an extent that I was going to cause myself, like, serious damage to my health. Like, it was, you know, 50, 60, 70 units a week. Probably more, to be honest, actually, 100. Okay, well, let's take a short break. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 QueerAidNarm Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and call on First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. 
Ah, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Alternatively, you can just call 3CR on 03 8377 and leave us a message. Today I'm talking with Zoe about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Zoe, when we left, you were talking about doing yourself some um, serious health damage in Northern Territory. So what's it like a, a day in the life of an alcoholic who's working at something like law? How, how's that go? Give us a day. Yeah, so you wake up in the morning at about eight o'clock, heart pounding, you're probably still a bit drunk from the night before. You have to be at court in an hour's time, so you quickly jump out of bed and get in the shower. This happened every day. Rush into court. You know, there's probably about eight clients that you have to see who are all in the cells. They've all, of course, um, a lot of them have been doing criminal offences involving alcohol. You're reeking of alcohol, so it's kind of hard to have any sort of authority or sway with clients when you're reeking of alcohol yourself, but anyway. Then you've got to go up and spend basically the whole day until 4pm taking instructions, entering pleas, representing the clients in court. It's a really stressful day at the best of times and you're coming up against lots of issues in Northern Territory. Um, a lot of the clients are Aboriginal, so there's language and enormous language and cultural barriers to come up against, not to mention all of the duties that you have to your clients as a lawyer and of course, you know, analyzing the case to ensure that you're giving the best possible legal advice you can in the circumstances and acting in your client's best interests. Let's say 4.30 p.m. you're finished at court, definitely time for a beer. It's been a stressful day, time to go to the pub and blow off some steam. The war stories start rolling in and someone suggests, why don't we get a round of shots? Because apparently this was just the done thing in Northern Territory. And yeah, you'd be off from there. So you'd be having beers and rounds of shots. We thought it was really funny to buy beers for our colleagues. And, and then the carousing will continue until you can't stand up anymore, 11 o'clock, midnight. Sometimes we'd drive home, which is incredibly stupid because Alice Springs is crawling with police, but somehow I never got caught. I don't know how that is. And then the day begins again, 8 a.m., you're probably still very drunk from the night before and you're back in the same grind. I guess it perpetuates itself as well because it's so stressful that you need a drink and you're stressed because you've been drinking. Yeah. So what was the weekend like then? Was that well, recovery? No. <laughs> Friday night, obviously, you need to go to the pub because it's been such a difficult week. So you go to the pub and it's, you know, the sad thing is, it's a great place to socialise. Like everyone goes to the pub there. So you'll see all lots of people that you work with, but also lots of different people from, you know, all different workplaces and things like that. Problem is that it's the pub and it's Friday afternoon. So things really kick off. We usually hit the hit up karaoke Friday night. 
probably make my way through the Macca's drive-through by about sort of three or four. And then, to be honest, the weekends were kind of horrible because you didn't often, you didn't necessarily always drink on Saturday nights. So I would often spend the weekends trying not to drink too much and just feeling awful and wondering why, why I'm here and why do I build a living, basically. It got pretty dark. So you said you did that for two years. Yeah. That's a long time to spend in the territory, two years. Yeah, I was the shell of myself, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, with a really um, entrenched drinking problem. So what about your colleagues? Were they doing the same? Yeah, I was drinking with my colleagues. So I had a couple of really heavy drinking colleagues who, of course, were my really close friends. Yeah. Yeah, I guess in terms of some of the stuff that happened, because it's easy to it's easy to talk about this happening, but it doesn't make sense without like an anecdote or something. Well, actually at a later job on a Tuesday night, I said to a couple of colleagues, I think alcoholics just have like an, a like sixth sense for who will get drunk with them because I picked out two colleagues and I was like, let's go to the pub. And yeah, so, you know, it was all fun. We were having beers, talking, whatever. And yeah, I guess it turns pretty dark because I woke up the next day naked with one of them and I had no recollection of how we got back there or what had happened. Um, and he was like 35 years older than me as well and had grandchildren. That was really, really awful. I turned up to work at 11 o'clock and my boss said to me, like, you can't do this. You have to be here at 8.30 and getting drunk on a Tuesday night is not an excuse. Women alcoholics put themselves at incredible risk. Were you aware of that when you were drinking? It's funny when you drink because you see things, like you see things in this really skewed way. Like I just thought I was having fun and I just thought that's like what young women do even though every part of me was like screaming out that I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want to sleep with my colleague. I'd only gone out for a couple of drinks and then suddenly it was 7am and I was wondering what had happened for the last six hours. Yeah. So did it affect your work having those sort of relationship? Mm. Well, I mean, I wouldn't call that a relationship, but like yeah. um, the, d- the decisions in the Northern Territory, I'd really gotten away with it a lot. Like sometimes I would have such a huge night that I just couldn't get out of bed the next day until midday. But I'd often be a bit like crafty about it and try and look at what I had on and be like, oh, well, I don't have any matters in court or I have one matter that I can palm off to someone else. I'd sort of plan when I could get super blackout drunk and sleep the whole next day. And it was tolerated in the NT. Don't know if it was endorsed because it's not good for the clients, but certainly tolerated. In Melbourne, when that incident I just described happened, yeah, I I got a talking to from my boss. I think she was really worried about me. I thought she was attacking me at the time, but I can see now that she made a really good point. She was like, you got to be careful of the situations that you put yourself in. Yeah, absolutely. So why did you leave the Northern Territory? I guess because the work was really, really full on. Um, I was really burnt out and my mental health was 
seriously bad. Like I was starting to, I've had these problems before, but I was starting to have these thoughts of like, maybe I should really think about taking my life and what's the point. I couldn't go to work without bursting into tears and I just needed alcohol because how else could I literally exist in this world unless at the end of the day I'm at least able to black out for a bit and solve those feelings. So did you seek treatment? <laughs> I went and saw a GP and she said, do you want to detox? And I was like, I don't need to detox. That's for people with brown paper bags or something. <laughs> I just didn't take her seriously. I was like, oh, well, that's not really what I wanted to hear. So I'm going to go back to drinking. Right. <laughs> but, you know, to her credit, it planted the seed. Yeah. So when did your drinking become too much of a problem for you that you thought maybe you should seek help? Yeah, look, after the incident with my colleague, it scared me because it, it made me realise how little control I had. I previously thought I could just stop, but, like, I had just planned to go out for a couple of drinks and this, I'm just going to go out for a couple of drinks and then suddenly finding myself in really scary and unsafe situations. Like that happened to me so many times. I started to realise, well, I thought I'll just have to cut down and make sure I'm a bit more careful. But of course, cutting down and making sure I was a bit more careful often led to other situations like that. Yeah. So how did you, what were, what were your tactics in trying to cut down or reduce? Because they're often quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I read this one on the internet that you get like several coins, like five coins, because you're going to have five drinks and you put them in your pocket. And then for every drink you have, you transfer the coin across. But of course, by the time you get to the fifth drink, you're like, fuck the coins. I'm just going <laughs> to. Yeah, or which pocket was, which way was I going? <laughs> yeah. 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 I remember the day that I, I realized I was going to have to stop drinking. I was about. You know, probably 28, I'd had another, like, woke up in a blackout naked with a colleague. This is, it was a really disturbing pattern towards the end of my drinking. And I was in a relationship at the time as well. And it just, anyway. Um, yeah, I realised I had to stop drinking and I just felt, like, so sad because I was like, but what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? My life's over. <laughs> Literally, that is what I thought. Like, um, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to be with my thoughts all the time. Like, oh. So tell us about your relationship. How difficult is it keeping a relationship when you're drinking? Yeah, it was not good. I was blacking out more and more frequently when I was 28, 29. Um, it's funny because when you first start drinking, it takes a lot of alcohol to black out, but it's weird the more you build up your tolerance, the more easily you black out. And my partner and I, well, ex-partner, we'd often have fights because I'd do things, I'd say things. I'd have no recollection of them. And he'd be so upset and we'd have an argument about it. And I'd be like, why can't you understand? I don't, I hate this. I don't want to be an alcoholic. Not that I called myself that. I'm feeling so horrible right now. You should feel sorry for me. Yeah, alcoholics are very persuasive. Yeah. I really believed it. All <laughs> uh, right. So did your relationship end before you sought help? 
Yeah, so I did like one of those online challenge things where you don't drink for 28 days and it was, I didn't make it through the 28 days, but that was right before the end of our relationship. And it was funny because, yeah, I was just having such colossal cravings and like I couldn't do anything. I couldn't socialise, nothing. I didn't get into AA until after we broke up. Yeah, okay, that's fine. So during that challenge then, what, what did you find was the, the issues for you in stopping drinking? Because often with alcoholics, stopping drinking is not a problem, but once it, it's the obsession that causes them to drink. Yeah, so was it the build-up? Was it the anxiety? Yeah, just massive anxiety. And it just felt like there was no reprieve, like from the week, from life, from the world. Um, and I said to myself, I'll just exercise more and I'll feel better. But it wasn't enough to take that just feeling of that raw feeling of oh, it's, it's hard to even. Yeah. I mean, anxiety and just the brutality of existence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, alcohol certainly so- softens the brutality. <laughs> I know that's a very like melodramatic way to put it, but yeah. like that's how it felt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Did a breakup cause you to drink more? Well, it was funny because by this time I was really, really aware of, like, it had become really obvious to me, like, I can't drink safely. I tried to control drinking and, like, when, like I said, like, control, I tried to control drinking and then I'd suddenly find myself blackout drunk and it scared me genuinely because it was like, wow, this is, this really is out of my control and... I still drank between, that was in October, I was drinking sort of relatively moderately between then and when I got into AA in Feb, well, in January. And I was so miserable because every time I'd pick up a drink, I'd be like, have my hands like with white knuckles around the the glass because I was like, oh, this can only be be my only one for tonight. And every part of me was wanting to just empty the bottle, but I knew that I couldn't do that. So I was just really miserable, basically. Okay, well, let's take another short break. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. Get lost in science. Tune in to 3CR every week to hear Beth. Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. 
Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Zoe about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. We sort of left talking about um, with you thinking about coming into AA. So what was the process? How did you actually get into AA? Well, I stopped drinking on the 1st of January this year and then I promptly relapsed a few days later. So I was steeped in self-hatred, but I was determined not to drink anymore. I had reached the conclusion that I, I couldn't drink. Like if, if I kept drinking, I was going to probably end up either in a situation that risked my life or I'd just take my life. I was feeling really low. So I had about three weeks where I was just not drinking and I was exercising heaps and, you know, eating well and I was like, okay, I should be feeling really amazing right now. What's going on? And I wasn't. I was feeling awful. I was feeling really depressed. I was feeling suicidal because my alcohol had been taken away from me and I knew that I couldn't drink. But I was like, well, what am I going to do? Like be sober for the rest of my life. Like the way I saw it was that I would just be existing through life. Like, yeah. Anyway, I was in such a low place that I thought, well, I mean... I could keep going like this. I'm probably going to have to kill myself, but I'll just like go to this AA meeting. It's probably a cult. It's probably completely stupid, but everything like nothing's working for me right now. And I basically want to die. So I'll just go because at the worst, it won't do anything. So I went to my first meeting. I'd actually been to a couple previously following particularly horrendous blackouts, but I hadn't committed. I wasn't ready. Anyway, I went for my first meeting and got asked to share, which was good. And then there were a heap of people going out for coffee afterwards. So I just forced myself to go because I was like, well, what are you going to do? Like go home and sit there and think about how you want to take your own life. Like just go. So I went and I got a few people's numbers and thank God I got a few people's numbers because they then kind of helped me, held me accountable. Like, oh, do you want to go to this meeting this week? Or how are you going? And yeah, it sort of went from there. Like I went to a couple more meetings, wasn't really sold, but there'd been a woman who I'd spoken to when I'd gone back in 2018. And I just thought, well, I've just got to give this a go. So I spoke to her and I, um, we en- she ended up becoming my sponsor. And it was because of that, that I just thought, well, I don't have like, they say in AA, my best ideas got me, Got you where you are. Got me where I am, yeah. And that it's funny because I hadn't heard that saying, but that was exactly what I was thinking. I was like, well, I don't know what to do. I guess I might as well just do this because they seem to know what they're talking about and what have I got to lose? Nothing because I'm I'm as low as I could possibly be. So, yeah, I got this sponsor. She told me to go to five to seven meetings per week. I was like, are you serious? Like what kind of like cult is this? Um I woke up one night in the middle of the night and something just like said to me in my head, you should probably just do that because, you know, what else are you going to do? And it was the beginning of lockdown by this stage as well. So, yeah, I started going to like meetings every day online 
and we started working through the steps together and yeah the whole time I was just saying to myself look just suspend your disbelief just give it a go you might as well. How did you find it going to online meetings as a that you know pretty new member? Yeah I think I'd been to about three in-person meetings by the time everything went maybe four. Yeah it was a bit weird at first because at first as well they were sort of a hybrid online and in person. Yeah. I think the positive about online meetings for newcomers is that you can hide. Like you just turn yeah. your camera off. No one needs to see you and you can just listen. Yeah. Uh, I guess the negative is like you can't talk to people afterwards. But yeah. Yeah. I think that's the major problem with online meetings is you don't get that contact afterwards. You don't feel part, part of you. You get the benefit of hearing and sharing potentially, but you don't you don't feel part of. Yeah. So how did you how did you do it then in that sense where you're sort of detached? I'm mean, so you've got phone numbers, so you've got people to call. So how did they support you through it? Yeah, well, luckily I had gotten a sponsor before lockdown happened. So we were checking in twice a week and I was doing the seven meetings a week, which is crazy but worked so and actually is was a really good thing in the beginning of lockdown because it was quite anchoring in a really uncertain time um but yeah it was just that regular check-in with my sponsor and I also just had this feeling like I want this so badly I don't want to go back to the way I was and maybe even just like I just had something to focus on that wasn't myself and it really helped yeah so did you have any family or friends support you or were you just was it just AA um it was just AA I actually went and stayed with my family during the first few months sort of March April May and my sisters were really supportive my mum was really really skeptical but to her credit she came around as well and but I've I don't know I guess I I said I was in AA but I didn't say a whole lot about what I was doing because it can be kind of hard to explain to people who haven't had much to do with it. Yeah. Well, I don't want to know anything about it. That too. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I've been an Al-Anon for a long time and I never really talked to my dad who was the alcoholic. I never really said to him, I'm going to Al-Anon because it didn't really matter. It wasn't, wasn't an issue. Yeah. But it does take a bit of effort to explain. So yeah, it's, yeah, I can see your point there. Yeah. And as a complete newcomer, some of the, like you see the word God on the wall and you're like, what on earth is this organisation? Like, is this some religious cult or something? But as you go to the meetings, you realise it's not like that at all. Yeah. 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 I think the concept of high power helps. Um, is, it really scares some people, but once you understand that it's your own concept, then I think it makes it a lot easier. Um, so what have you found really helpful in AA? Mm, lots of things. I think the, it's impossible to say what the main thing is, but when you go into an AA meeting, there is only, like, there's only love and tolerance there. People are not going to judge you. People are just kind and they want to see the best for everyone. So it's a really welcoming place. And if you decide that it's not for you, no one's going to care. I mean, they just want to see you get well. I guess aside from that, 
there's something about meetings that is just incredibly calming and it takes you out of your own head and you do a meeting and you feel like, yeah, I've got this. I can, I can handle whatever life throws at me. Yeah. Recharges the batteries. Yeah. And it's hard to say why, but it just does. Yeah. So how's your mental health these days? Yeah, really good. <laughs> I honestly, it's so weird. Like I have, um, gone down on my antidepressants dosage I don't wake up like contemplating should I make a plan to end my life I can just cope with life more than cope I actually wake up some days and I think oh my god I'm so happy to be alive how awesome is being alive and that is just not something that I would have said (laughs) six months ago Um, what about work how's work now yeah, I work in a really demanding area of law. It's very, like, high high intensity and quite stressful. And that was a potent combination when I was drinking because it was, yeah, like I described before, the vicious cycle of stress, drink, drink, stress. Um, work is really, really good now. I feel like I've um, I've got a lot more confidence in my own abilities because... It's sort of hard to link it to AA and yet I know there's a link because I just have this general sense like, yep, I've got this. I can can handle whatever I have to deal with. What about relationships? Have you ventured out? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't done anything. And, you know, lockdown, it's pretty hard to meet anyone. So, yeah, nothing. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. Okay. So what about friends then? Have you started talking to friends about it? Yeah, I have. I've told a lot of people about it. I mean, some people say not to say anything about it, but it's such a big thing in my life that I do want to talk about it because I I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time doing AA stuff. There's been sort of really varied reactions. Some people are like, that's awesome. Good on you. That's so great that you're doing that. Others are like, oh, okay, yeah, I didn't know you drank that much which I'm like, oh, lucky you. Um, Through the other end of like, why are you doing this? Can't you just get a bit of therapy? Can't you just exercise a bit? Won't you feel better that way? Yeah, just control it, yeah. Trust me, if I could, I would. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And what about family? Are Are they more accepting of you? Maybe they didn't see you at your worst or your best. No, I don't think they did. Yeah. So no. have you have you sort of gone through that with them, tried to, you know, fill them in? Yeah, I've found family really, really accepting. Yeah. It's actually so surprising because when I, I went to stay with them in the beginning of lockdown, I was thinking, oh, how am I going to hide this from them? And then it was impossible to hide because, you know, you're sneaking off every night to do a meeting. Oh, what are you doing? Well, you just have to tell them. And, yeah, yeah, everyone was like, that's great. Good on you. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's about living. You know, that's the reason why you stop drinking is to start living in real terms because the drink was just a way to avoid living. Yeah, and I think that they can see the change in me. Like I'm, I'm more patient. Yeah, I'm just calmer and I'm sure more pleasant to be around. So are you more tolerant of your mum? Yeah, 
I've been frustrated with her, but I'm getting better at understanding that, yeah, the whole, like, it's my side of the street or it's her side of the street, you know, like she, yeah, I'm still working on that. Yeah, the whole thing is accepting that she's got a right to be an alcoholic and alcoholics drink and they cause problems, basically. They say things you don't want to hear and they (laughs) do things you don't want them to do. But accepting that, you know, that's like, diabetes or cancer that you know somebody doesn't put their hand up to become an alcoholic but once they've got it they can't give it away yeah that's so true i think it acceptance is so powerful it just it makes everything easier yeah and the ability to detach to let her live her life on her terms uh, because if you try and change an alcoholic they just you know they dig their heels in as you'd know you'd you can't you can't tell an alcoholic what to do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so sometimes we ask people, you know, what would you tell somebody in your situation? What what's your what's your insight? Yeah, it's like you said before, when you stop drinking, you actually do start living. And it is possible when you put a drink down to actually genuinely enjoy being alive and be grateful for all of the amazing things that come with being alive doesn't have to be the way that you think it has to be when you're drinking. There's literally a whole other way of living out there. If you just put a drink down. Yes, I agree. Um, Okay. So if anybody's out there who'd like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, then you can find them on one three hundred triple two triple two, or you can go online at aa.org.au for more information and details about local AA meetings or uh, electronic meetings. Well, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Zoe for coming into 3CR studio today and sharing her Alcoholics Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from alcohol, gambling and food addictions and be joined by members of another 12-step recovery fellowship. Content warning, this interview contained descriptions and discussions about sexual abuse, suicidal thoughts and mental health and illness that may have been distressing to some listeners. If this raised questions or caused distress, please call 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732, Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. Thanks for listening and stay tuned now for Alternative. And to take us out, uh, we've got a song by Evermore off their Dreams album called It's Too Late. Enjoy.
from every corner of the land. Womankind, arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear! Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au.